morning, all. Good morning, all you people in the back of the church. Lots of space up here if you were thinking of, like, wanted to get a little closer. And good morning to all of you joining us online. Um, <clears throat> so a little bit of a, 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 you know, an awkward, like, snow business yesterday, right? I mean, it, it's like, you know, you're kind of, you're gearing up for spring, and then this winter weather comes, and it's just like, this doesn't fit. This isn't, this isn't what I ordered, you know? A- A- Amy said, you know, they're, gonna, they're getting snow uh, on, on Saturday, and I said, who asked for that? You know? I don't know. Um, <clears throat> before we get into the sermon today, um, I just wanted to take a, a minute to pray uh, uh, for the situation in, in Europe continuing as the, as the war in Europe continues. I um, just want to begin this morning with a word of prayer. And a, a few weeks ago, Fuller Theological Seminary, which is a seminary out in California, they put out this statement uh, and prayer that I, that I thought was beautiful and I thought it was appropriate. So they say, tragically, Human beings are inclined towards war. We see it again vividly and tragically unfolding in Ukraine right now that Russia has begun its anticipated invasion. We remember all those whose lives or those of family um, and friends are affected by this war. May we join together in, to pray for an immediate end to this violence for a restraint against domineering leadership and a turn from war towards peace and justice, Lord, in your mercy. Of course, the world has already at, was already at war in places like Asia and Africa and South America. And before missiles began to hit cities in Ukraine, bombs and more were already raining down on men and women and children, lives being abused or lost, families being destroyed, life being turned upside down. We know that God hears the cries of the innocent sufferers, especially those of women and children and the poor, who are most often among the greatest victims of of violence and war. We join in their prayers and in their agonies. We lament with them. Prayers against nationalistic aggression with all its abusive power and self-justified violence can seem futile compared to overwhelming tools of destruction. But the God revealed to us in Scripture is a God who knows the pathetic narratives of war. He has suffered at the hands of empire. He has acted with the life-giving power of Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, the sovereign one over death. Lord Jesus, servant and master, bringer of shalom, of peace and reconciliation, with deep sorrow and concern we cry out to you at this war. As this war continues, we long for you to arrest this violence and destruction and all violence and destruction to bring this war and all wars to a just end and for your protection for all civilians and everyone directly involved in military action in Ukraine and in in Russia and around the world. Lord, in your mercy, amen. 
So um, we're continuing this morning in our series, God in Our Midst, uh, which is actually, so, so, so the theory, series at large is God in Our Midst. The, the current Lenten series is God in Our Midst, The Upper Room. So if you were, if you were keeping track of what the title of the sermon series is. But, so you could turn with me, uh, if you would, to John chapter 14. So um, it had to have been an awkward moment for several reasons. I mean, not only had Jesus just washed the disciples' feet, which was kind of an awkward thing to do, uh, there was also this awkward moment when Judas left the room and there was like talk of betrayal. And then Peter promises to be there for the Lord and, and the disciples might have thought that this was like, like a moment of courage. I, I, will, I will lay down my life for you, Lord. And then Jesus basically told him that it wouldn't take much for even him. He's the guy, he's Peter. It wouldn't even take him much for him to betray him. So yeah, it kind of had to have been an awkward moment. And now the conversation picks back up right at the beginning of John 14. So you could turn there. Jesus says, right at the beginning of John 14, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So let's just take a moment with, with that verse. For starters, you know, I can't imagine how it must have felt to hear the words, uh, let not your hearts be troubled, come from the lips of Jesus. I mean, like, have you ever had, like, you think about, you know, maybe your parent or maybe your grand, a grandparent, a grandfather, or maybe a, a, somebody special in your life as a child that when they put their hand on you and said, it's, it's, it's okay, you know, it's, I know it hurts right now, but it's going to be okay. Like the, 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 you, you trusted that voice. So now Jesus had clearly told the disciples, I mean, now that, that Jesus had clearly told the disciples that the world's trials would have been real. This conversation was hours before the crucifixion. So when Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, he wasn't just saying like everything is going to be okay from here on out because it wasn't going all to be okay and it hasn't been okay since. So in my humble opinion, when Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, he was, he was implying that although there is darkness in the present situation, Judas betraying, Peter denying, the cross approaching, God remains on the throne, and darkness will never have a chance when the light arrives. As evil, as heavy as evil appears to be, it is nothing compared to the good that is working even now. Even in the midst of this present darkness, there is good at work. I mean, in the middle of the night, it appears that darkness has, has won, right? If you were walking the darkened streets at 1 a.m. having never experienced a sunrise, I don't why you would. But anyway, it, it might seem outrageous if someone told you that in a few hours, everything was going to be different. The thing is, the sun doesn't just rise like the flick of a switch. It takes time. It begins with something barely distinguishing itself as light. But then in time, the light comes up and everything is different. And, and then eventually, the sun is then so bright that it's even hard to look directly at it. How things can change in just a few hours, but it takes trust. And, I, and that, I think, is what Jesus was getting at. 
He said, let not your hearts be troubled. And then he makes this reference to their belief in God. He says, guys, you believe in God. You have these traditions. You, you have these, this, this faith, this ancient faith. But I need you to believe. Um, you, you believe that, 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 that he is in all things. You believe God is in all things. You believe that God is the Lord of the universe. And you need to believe also in me, Jesus says. To believe in God is to trust him. To believe in Jesus is to trust him. You might be able to say that you believe in God or that you believe in God. But the question really is, I think here, do you believe him? Remember, John has made it clear to us that the reason why he was writing Jesus, this account of Jesus' life um, has been to make it clear that the reason why he's writing is that we would believe in him. The word believe here is, is the Greek word pistuo, meaning you know, to, think, uh, to think to be true, to be persuaded, to, to credit, to place confidence in, to, to entrust. So Jesus is saying, believe in God, believe also in me. I think he is saying, trust me. The Apostle Paul says this of Jesus, and this is really incredible. Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Jesus, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In, and that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, get this, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Dwell where? In our midst. And through him to reconcile all things, whether in an, all things in, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So, you could say that Paul had a high Christology. He, he thought highly of Jesus. Paul, and the early church for that matter, they didn't just think that Jesus was a great leader of morality. They thought he was the one true king of the cosmos. He thought that um, he was the one true king of all existence. But, but here's the problem. When we dethrone Jesus as king... We enthrone something else that is not worthy of our trust. You know, some cynics might say, you know, the only person I trust is myself. Good luck with that. If the only person I trusted was myself, I don't think I would be living my best life. When Jesus says, trust me, he isn't just saying, trust me with your religion or your morality, or what you do on Sunday mornings. He is saying, I want you to trust me. I hold all things together. I want you to trust me with your very existence. I want you to trust me with reality itself. Every step you take, I want you to be thinking, is this how God created you to be? Is this how God created you to walk? God says, I created you, I formed you, I know you better than you know yourself. Please, for your own good, trust me. And then Jesus continues. He says in verse 2, he says, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And, and you know the way to where I am going. You know the way already. And at that point, Thomas said to him, Lord, uh, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, Thomas, I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Now, the assumption for many folks reading this text is that Jesus is simply talking about heaven. Essentially, the thinking here goes, you know, Jesus saying, I'm about to leave, but don't be troubled because I'm going to go to heaven, I'm going to get it ready for you, and then you and I are going to spend eternity there. The problem with that is that it doesn't really line up with the tale that John has been telling or the tale of the New Testament at large. We've talked a lot about this in, in the past, that, that the point of Christianity is not about getting right with Jesus in order that you can go to heaven when you die. Now, there are times, I think that this is one of them, when the New Testament speaks about being in God's presence at the time of death, during Jesus' crucifixion. Two men are hanging, um, being crucified alongside of him, and, and, and one asks Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom, and, and Jesus responds, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So, so yes, there is an immediate hope after death, but our final hope is what Jesus is going to point to on the other side of the cross. Our final hope is resurrection. Not just in Jesus' resurrection, or even the resurrection of our earthly bodies, but in the resurrection of all things that will take place when Jesus returns to set up his rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. And the new heaven and the new earth are here for eternity. This is the picture that we get in the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, God in our midst, the dwelling place of God is with humans, with humanity. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, the voice of Jesus Christ says, Behold, I am making all things new. You know, it's interesting that, that Revelation would say the words dwelling place, that say that the dwelling place of God is with humanity, because the phrase dwelling place, it, it literally means tabernacle, like, like temple, which is exactly how the beginning of the Gospel of John put it when, when it said that in the beginning was the word, and the word tabernacle, the word dwelled with humanity. Back to John 14. Jesus said to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then he started talking about his father's house. Now, can you remember another time in John's gospel when Jesus started talking about 
my father's house. Remember back to chapter 2. Jesus goes to the temple, the structural version of the tabernacle, and he chases out money changers and he overturns the the tables and he yells at them, take these things away, he says. Do not make my father's house into a house of trade. And then John even quotes Psalm 68 by saying that the disciples remember then and there the verse that says, zeal for your house will consume me. And if that wasn't enough to kind of get your, your wheels turning in your head to think about the temple, we also hear Jesus tell his disciples that he goes and prepares a place for them. That's an interesting term. I mean, the term place is common enough, but it was actually used in a very peculiar way just a few chapters ago. I don't know if you remember it. After Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the Jewish leaders, they have this meeting and they start to discuss what they're going to do with this Jesus guy as if they had much of a choice. You know, John tells us that they said, oh no, what are we going to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Interesting that language right there, that the fear of the Jewish authorities here is that the people might believe in Jesus. And then, if the, as if they're in their thinking, the consequences of the people believing in Jesus is that the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, place is a common word, but it kind of sticks out there, doesn't it? Like virtually all scholars, I mean, even if you were reading it and didn't know much about um, uh, Jewish culture, you know, you, you might assume that what they're talking about is the temple. The temple is their place, right? But it's funny that it doesn't just say temple. The word place there kind of sticks out. I remember the first time I read it, like circling place. That just seems kind of an awkward, you know, um, way to say that. So, so where does that leave us and, and why does it matter? See, what I think is that right at the beginning of John 14, the volume knob has been turned up with temple language. Jesus refers to his father's house and then mentions that he is going to prepare a place for his disciples. And remember, the whole point of the temple was that the temple was God in their midst. God dwelling among them in the tabernacle in the days of Israel, in the days of, of, of Israel wandering in the darkness or wandering in the desert, um, the tabernacle was, was portable, right? It actually could be folded up with the Ark of the Covenant and could be folded up and then placed. It would go in the midst of the people along with the people so that wherever the people went, God was with them. And now Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and then I will take you to myself, that where I am, you will be also. And you know the way to where I'm going, guys. You, you know the way. You've known the way for the past three years because you've met me. The disciples are kind of confused by this, and Lama says, Lord, I don't understand. You know, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus says, no, 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 don't you see? I am the way. I am the truth. I embody the, the direction of your faith. I, div- I embody the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. I mean, note the clear connection. I know we're kind of getting heady here this morning. Note the clear connection that Jesus is making between God's presence and Jesus' life. 
So if you would have asked the, the average, you know, first century Palestinian Jew, you know, if you had gone up to somebody on the street and you would have said, hey, tell me about the way, the truth, and the life, they probably would have started talking to you about the Torah, about the sacrificial system, about the temple, about God's house, God's place, dwelling in their midst. They would have told you about their traditions and festivals and the hope that they have in Yahweh their Lord. All of this was how they approached God. And you know what? That would have been the right answer. And in a way, it's still the right answer. Because what Jesus is saying here, what Jesus has been saying, and what you hear him saying in various different ways throughout all four Gospels and really the entire New Testament, is what Jesus is saying is that all of that was pointing to me, was pointing to him. He's not just the the great rabbi who interprets Torah and suggests a way. He's saying, guys, I am the way. To follow Jesus is to follow the path of truth and life. Jesus is the fulfillment of Torah. Jesus is the living embodiment of the temple itself. And now he is calling both Jew and Gentile alike to follow him in a newly constituted humanity, the family of God. So let not your hearts be troubled. I got this. No, it's not going to be according to your agenda. And you're going to look at the world suffering. You're going to look at me dying on the cross. And it's going to seem like hope is all lost. Hope is completely gone. Well, how could we possibly have any hope left when Jesus himself is dying at the hands of the Romans on the cross? But let not your hearts be troubled. Believe that God is moving and believe that I hold all things together. To follow Jesus is to be on the side of truth and life, even when you don't have all the answers. So Philip, he says to Jesus, verse 8, Lord, um, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Just, 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 let's, just be, let's just be plain, Jesus. You know, let's, let's just speak truth, right? Let's, 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 let's get some straight talk. And, and Jesus looks back at him and says, have I been with you so long? And you still don't know me, Philip. You know, it's easy to look at the darkness of this world and use it as an example or as an excuse to say that God is absent. But for some reason, it's harder for us to look at the good in this world and use it as a reason that God is present. The darkness is there. The trials are are there. The trials are real. And there is much to lament about the state of this world I think about personally, you know, there's much to lament regarding the state of, of my life. There are things that I wish that I, there are ducks that I wish I had in a row that I just don't. You know, at 40 years old, gosh, I wish I would have had this together. I wish I would have had my health more together than it is. I wish, you know, there are things that I would have liked to have accomplished by now. And I just, there, 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 there's things that are, seem unsettled. But I look at this world that I've been placed in. I look at my family, I look at my parents, I look at my brothers, I look at my wife and my sons and my friends, I look at this community in which I serve, I think about these times of laughter and hope and joy, and in spite of all of that, I still find myself crying out, where are you, God? And when I do, 
I feel this gentle reminder from Jesus. Have I been with you? Have, have I been with you so long and you, and you still don't know me? You still don't recognize me? I give you new blessings every morning. Do you have eyes to see them? I know the trials are real. I know the darkness is real. And we're going to work on that together. But don't you realize I'm here? I've never left you. And I never will. I need you to trust me. You see, I think there is reason, even now, to hope. The world is a confusing and dark place, but I believe there is still hope. I mean, just look at the state of the church today. There's a lot of things that we could talk about. I'm like, <laughs> you know, there was just another massive sex scandal that, heck, that came out from a, from a megachurch in, in Canada this past week, and you see something like that, and you're just, oh, you know, another one. Um, this world is a confusing and dark place, but... You know, when, when we think about the state of the, the church today, I also see, in the midst of all that darkness, I also see that we are having Christ-centered conversations now in the church, worldwide, and specifically in America, that would have been unheard of just a few decades ago. It, it's like we had these boxes on the shelves that we haven't opened in years, and there are reasons for, for not opening the boxes, boxes having to do with you know, issues of like justice and violence and power and race and human sexuality. And we're realizing when we take those boxes off the shelf that, oh, gosh, gosh, there's an awful lot of work that needs to be done here. I mean, there is a reason why we kept those on books, boxes on the shelf and tried to ignore them. But, but the boxes now, actually, at, the, at, the, at this point, at the beginning of the 21st century, these boxes are open for the first time, in, in some cases, the first time ever. And yeah, that's scary. But there's also hope there. And even though it's hard, it's good for those things to be exposed. The American church has lived for an awful long time with those boxes neatly closed up on the shelf. We've tried our best to ignore them, and that game plan is not going to work any longer. I'm not saying it's not going to be messy. But at least these boxes are open. We're having the conversation. Okay, the box is open. We need to talk about it. I see hope in that. I see God moving in that. I see God working even in the messes. In fact, I think that the church at its best over the centuries, the church has been at its best when we've walked towards the messes. Jesus says, verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the work that I do. Greater things, greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. What a crazy thought, right? That we could actually do greater things than Jesus, and that he's going to do whatever we ask. But remember, he said, in my name, implying that this thing that you're going to ask is actually in line with the kingdom agenda. But don't overthink it. Jesus lived some 33 years on this earth, and he only taught publicly for three of them. His following was incredibly impressive, and he impacted thousands of lives. But there came a time for his earthly ministry to end and for him to return to the Father. 
And so what we might want to read, we might want to read that word, those words as in spite of Jesus going back to the Father, we'll do great things. But, but that's not what he says. He says, because I'm going back to the Father, you're going to do greater things than even the things you saw me do. As we see in the book of Acts, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. Remember last week, just before he washed the disciples' feet, John comments that Jesus knew that God had given all things into his hands. Unlimited power, right? And in the last passage of Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells the disciples that all authority has, in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and then he gives them the great commission. So for Jesus to ascend to the right hand of the Father means that he is taking his rightful place in the universe. The one true king is now on the throne, and that is only for our benefit. See, Jesus sits down in the rightful place. He sits down in the captain's chair, and he looks at his crew, and he says, engage. Jesus says in verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll, you'll love God in mind, body, spirit, and heart. If you love me, you'll treat your neighbor as yourself. If you love me, you'll, be, you'll move past the objectification of others and treat other people as the human beings. You'll treat human beings like the image bearers of the divine that they are. If you love me, you'll love your enemies. You'll pray for those who persecute you. You'll put down lust and anger and hate, and you'll embrace love, acceptance, and forgiveness. If you love me, you'll be a peacemaker, an advocate for shalom. You'll go the extra mile. You'll feed the poor. You'll stand for the vulnerable. You will live a life of resurrectional cruciformity, a life that is fueled by the resurrection and yet in the shape of the cross. And if all that seems like Jesus is just setting the bar too high, Jesus, how could you possibly expect all that from me? You'd be right. None of this is possible by our own power. That's why Jesus doesn't just leave it at a call for obedience. And guys, you know, hey guys, I'm giving you this job and you better not screw it up. No, verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you the parakletos. To be, you, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither knows him nor or sees him nor knows him, but, but you know him, for he dwells in you. God's spirit dwells in you and will be in you. I mean, this is, of course, a, a reference to the Holy Spirit, um, but the word parakletos, it doesn't mean Holy Spirit. Uh, the ESV translates it as helper. The NRSV and the NIV translate it as advocate. The King James uses comforter. And I love this, the message just says friend. The most important thing for us to remember about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is a who, not a what. The Holy Spirit is God's living spirit dwelling in our midst. As we say in the Nicene Creed, the Holy Spirit is both worshipped and glorified. He is God's very spirit living through us, helping us to be the people we were created to be, the people we were redeemed to become. The Christian life is one of transformational mission. 
As we live out the gospel and do the things that he's called us to do, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being transformed and renewed day by day. You see, Jesus didn't really leave the disciples, and he hasn't left us. His Spirit is present with us now, advocating for us with the Father, helping us, comforting us, being our friend And his desire, it is the desire of of God's Holy Spirit that we would do the work of love for our community, for this world that God loves so much from the very presence of God himself. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 18, I will not leave you. Guys, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you again. Yet a little while and the the world will see see me no more, but but you will see me. You're you're going to to bear witness. You guys are going to bear witness to the resurrection, and I want you to spread that word. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father. Get this. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. How beautiful is that, that picture of mutual indwelling? Um, We've talked about that a lot in in house churches over the past couple of uh, months. Uh, This picture of mutual indwelling that we see again and again in John, where Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But now Jesus is saying, in that day, in light of the resurrection, you will know that, that I am in my Father. But you'll also know that you in me and I in you. The connection that that Jesus has with the Father is also the same connection that, that, that we have with him. It's like we are dwelling. It's often been said that the best theology of the church is that we are a Trinitarian community. We are like in the midst of the Trinitarian love, the, uh, the, 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 Trini- the, the, the midst of the Trinity itself. And we are um, like being the mission of God for this world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I'll, I'll manifest myself to him. I mean, I'll, I'll make myself plain. The disciples are confused by this, and Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make, I love this, we will make our home with him. Again, again, and again, we see this beautiful image of, of what Christianity is not about is like the Father and, and, and the Son and the Holy Spirit are off like, like the gods of the Greco-Roman world. They're uninterested in the affairs of, man, of humanity. And when they do kind of get involved, it's really just a mess and they're kind of bringing their own drama. This God is intimately connected, intimately connected with his people, working through them, living through them, And Jesus is saying, as you love like the way that I loved, as you live this life of resurrectional cruciformity, a life defined and energized and fueled by the resurrection, but in the shape of the sacrificial love of the cross, as you do that, you will be transformed and become the people, the redeemed people that I always created you to be. That's the hope. We live now in the anticipation of that new creation hope. I mean, the life of a Jesus follower is, is living in anticipation of that promise. As we devote our lives to loving God and loving others, that we are literally transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
transformational mission. It's like we, we don't get transformed and then we do the mission. We are transformed as we live out the mission of God, as we go out and love in this world, as you get up tomorrow morning, you go to your job, whatever it is you're doing, the, the things that you're doing to follow and glorify God at your job, with your family, in your communities. It's those things that you're following God's lead and you're, and you're following the bread trail of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control as you're following those breadcrumbs, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You're actually being transformed into the image and likeness of God more and more day by day. Like Paul says, we live these lives of sacrifice. We live, uh, we're, we're, our, our bodies are living sacrifices. And we are transformed day by day, renewed in our mind in the likeness of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we trust this transformation to you. We trust that this work that you've called us to do, we, we, we are so daunted by it. We're so overwhelmed by it. Gosh, Lord, wouldn't it have been a whole lot easier, we say, if, if you just stayed here in, in bodily form and, and, and we could just follow your lead. But no, Lord, you wanted to work through your church. That was always your plan, that we would be the hands, the feet, the voice of gospel proclamation of the good news that your kingdom has come and is coming on earth as it is in heaven. You taught us that the kingdom is within our midst. We can reach out. It's within our grasp. And Father, you also show us this, this vision of, of one day, the consummation of all things, the reconciliation of all things that is coming. You ask us to trust you with that hope. And Lord, you also ask us to live today in that anticipation and we can make those choices that glorify your kingdom as like we are actually citizens of that kingdom and we live that hope today. New, new creation is today. Salvation is today. Resurrection is today. We live into that hope now. And we live now like we're never going to stop living. Lord, help us with that. Strengthen us. Help us to live in a community that reminds each other and encourages each other of that hope. Um, Lord, we give all of this to you. We love you, Father. And we know that you love us. In Christ's name, amen.